HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. I interview extraordinary women who I admire and learn about their work, their life, and things that inspire us every single day. And today I have one of the people I admire most in the world of food, Ashley Christensen. Ashley, I'm so happy to be here in Raleigh. Welcome. I don't often get to go to the hometown of the person that I'm talking to, and uh, I'm so excited to be with you and to get to experience your restaurant Pools, there are seven of them now? Yeah, so it goes, uh, which turned 15 this year, Pools Diner. Uh, Pools Diner is next to Poolside Pies, which is the youngest of our ventures, and they uh, are side by side, so that we kind of think of them as bookending our uh, locations. Uh, Second would be Beasley's, which is our uh, fried chicken and honey joint, and that's above the yet-to-be-but-soon-to-be-reopened Fox, uh, which is our bar. It's in a basement, and we opted not to dig into reopening that during the pandemic. Pandemic and windowless basement bar didn't have a lot of charm together. uh, And then we go Death and Taxes. Uh, Bridge Club is up above that, and that's our private event space. And uh, just a couple miles out of town, out of the center of downtown, we've got Auxiliary Kitchen. We call it Ox. It's our commissary and HQ, but uh, all of our concepts in downtown Raleigh are within five blocks of one another. Wow. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit today about the idea of reset. Yes. Um, And starting with pools, because when Mm -hmm. I was reading about the history of pools, it's like a reset on a reset on a reset. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I just feel like it's sort of starting at the beginning for you of the journey. If we can go way back, maybe to your dad's experience of what that place was and vertigo as you experienced it in another incarnation Mm -hmm. and then bringing us up to date a little bit to the 15 year anniversary, which congratulations. Thank you so much. It's really, I'm here to celebrate that. Yeah. We, uh, we opened December 13th of 2007, but I came to Raleigh 
at age 18, the, uh, the day after my 18th birthday, to go to school at NC State and just started uh, cooking and throwing dinner parties and you know, feeling very connected to food because it was how I grew up. And once I got into the, uh, the industry, just someone working hourly in the kitchen and in dining rooms, I got a job at a place called the Vertigo Diner. And my father and I, he has uh, since passed. He passed just a couple of years ago, Sorry. not as a product of the pandemic, but during the pandemic. But um, I would talk to him about this place that I was working. And I, it was so, it felt so interesting. There's such, there to me, there have always been um, just tremendous ghosts in that space. And the spirit of... Um, a place that has been a part of a city for a mm-hmm. long time. And then we do have death and taxes, which we do feel very well, maybe haunted. <laughs> <laughs> we just try and, you know, when, when I enter that building, I say, Hey, thanks for having us. We're here to uh, do this thing. We'll stay out of your way. Let us know if you need anything. Not too loudly, please. Uh, right. but Don't yeah. scare anyone. <laughs> we honor you. Yeah, but I started working at this place, Vertigo Diner, and it was fairly new concept as Vertigo. And I would tell my father about it, and he would say, I just can't picture, like, I know where you're talking about, but I, I'm not sure exactly what that is. But, uh, you know, and I don't think he had told me about this at the time, but... Years later, I had worked at Vertigo, and I started working as the chef at this place called the Humble Pie. And my dad came, uh, his mother had passed away, so he came back from New York and came to New Year's Eve dinner at Humble Pie. And after, I said, well, why don't we go um, you know, get a drink somewhere? And I said, where do you want to go? And he said, I want to go to the Vertigo. You're always talking about the Vertigo. And we drive down, we get out of the car, and and he looks at the front of the building, and he says, like, oh, my gosh, this is not the Vertigo. This is is Poole's Luncheonette. I used to stand in line here when I was living in Raleigh at age 19 and working before he was shipped off to the Vietnam War. And uh, he was just floored by it, and we walked in. And, of course, you see all those same bones, the double horseshoe bar and the banquettes and the you know, the booths. And, and he just was like, so charmed and touched by this. My dad was like a big you know, fan of history and what makes city. He was a truck driver when I was a kid. So he loves these little charming places that really tell the story of a, a city or a town. But uh, um, as, as he realized where he was when we were outside, he also looked across and he pointed at this building and he said, in that building, that's the building that I was drafted for Vietnam wow. out of. And so when that, that where that building was is now the um, Red Hat Amphitheater, amazing venue. But I, the day they t- tore that building down, I called my dad and I said, hey, I got some great news. <laughs> and he loved <laughs> no it. No more drafting out of <laughs> yeah, that spot. Yeah, but when I when I went on and, uh, you know, it was time to, I was ready to enter the search for my own venture. Um, I started looking, I was looking for like a week and I got a call from the owner of what was the vertigo they had turned it back into pools diner recognizing the importance of of the history of that place and um it felt right and it was great I, you know i called my parents and they they're not together but separately they both said i think this is the best idea you ever had. <laughs> you know? so it's neat to have that connection to the space but i would really only learn about you know as i got to know the owners as they considered me for the person to buy the lease. They're amazing folks. The My landlord is the daughter of John Poole, who built that building in wow. the 40s. And her husband, Leon Jordan, and, you know, they would tell me all that he, especially Leon, 
loves the history of Raleigh, shared a lot of photos and told me all these great stories about the old diner and the old luncheonette. And, you know, its history is that it started as a pie shop. Mm -hmm. Uh, Downtown Raleigh kind of became a busier place around them. So they had this little lunch counter. Lunch counter gets so busy, they keep moving the wall back towards the kitchen. No way! And lunch counter gets so busy that they move the pie shop somewhere else and it becomes, you know, pool's luncheonette. There's something that really struck me that, you know, you were working in a, a place that, at Humble Pie. Humble Pie. Yeah. yeah. And your dad's like, but you really always talk about this place vertigo, yeah. you know? <laughs> and I just thought that was so charming that yeah. he remembered. And it's like, there's something about that place that obviously got to you too, yes. even when it was a, that not living up to its history or its future, because you could see the future in it mm-hmm. as well. Absolutely. And, you know, it means something to so many generations yes. of, of people, all centered and anchored by this set of bones that is that space. And the way you just said it, I, I think about how much my father and I had in common in the way that things stood out to us and struck Mm -hmm. us. And I love that. And that lives on in me. And it's one of the things that makes me still feel very close to him. Yeah. That's beautiful. (laughs) Because you know, from the landlord and from the, your father having lived it and you having lived it a bit, like, what do you feel just in terms of legacy inspires you in that place? Because Mm. you're doing something that is light years away and yet really in the same time zone yeah, as yeah. the original pools. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I recently someone asked me a question about you know, how is it still connected yeah. to a food experience that someone might have searched out mm-hmm. in, in a space like that. And I think it's in the comfort. Comfort can exist in, in so many ways and be framed in so many ways. But, but looking at, you know, the thing that I've always wanted to be true about that place is what the uh, what the American diner or luncheonette mm. means is walking in and kind of rolling your shoulders back, mm. you know, and having this sense of feeling welcomed in. Mm-hmm. And so we work really hard to continue to honor that in the original concept. But then, you know, we have fun with things like a rabbit confit with little dumplings in a in a where the dumplings we use a little bit of the duck fat that we confit the rabbit with and that speaks to this old dish called chicken slick that was like chicken and pastry where you added some of that you you fatten the noodles with a little bit of the drip the schmaltz from the chicken and so there are a lot of little conversations like that between old dishes from that lunch counter and um, how how we keep that thread kind of running through into new ideas, you know. And I, I um, we've got a, a chef cuisine in all of our restaurants mm-hmm. and and at pools. Uh, it's a guy named David Ellis. He's looking for his mm-hmm. space where he's going to do his own concept. But in the meantime, we're working together with both of our creative ideas, but in the language of this diner. One of the things I was curious about, I'd read that your father was a trucker and that he really loved bringing home <clears throat> stories of the diners from the yeah. different places that he'd been. And I wonder if any of those stories you carry with you like in your everyday. You know, I think that my favorite story, and this is, I think, where my dad really connected with the community of food. You know, the idea is he was away from us a lot, uh, driving his truck, but he would, he he loved these little mom and pop places and he would go and 
feel like he was connected to the place that he was traveling through. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he knew how to ask the right questions, I think, to find those places, which is very special. But then he would come home and, you know, we had these beautiful big gardens and my mom is a great Southern cook and they would cook together. But my dad would work to, uh, you know, he'd pull down a cookbook and kind of try and piece together some meal he'd had somewhere and try and make this thing for us. New Orleans was a favorite route of his, but I also remember when he came home from Cincinnati making that chili that is still not my favorite, but (laughs) (laughs) funny about cinnamon, but he shared a story with me and, you know, our our whole family knows the story. My brother knows it well. My brother is four and a half years older than I am. And he used to travel with my father and go on these routes in the summer with my dad. And they were in New Orleans and they uh, had pulled in outside the French Quarter in the truck. And at the time, truck drivers carried a lot of cash. Yeah, And so they pulled in, it was hot, the windows were down and a guy jumped up and put a gun to my brother's head and, you know, told my father, give me all of your money. And, and so my dad carried a gun at that time and he knew it would never be worth reaching for. And he took all of his money and he gave it to the guy and the guy hopped down and ran, ran away. And so the first thing that they did was went into the quarter and went to a restaurant and asked to use, or went to a shop and asked to use the phone. My dad made a call, you know, I assume to my mother, uh, but the shop owner then heard what was happening and took them into the quarter and took them to a few restaurants that fed them and, and people gave them money. People gave them cash to get to where they were going to next, where my father could um, then do his next job and earn earn the money to to get my brother home, you know. Wow. So, pretty amazing. And that to me, amazing. but that you know, that's like you could say is a restaurant story, but it is because if you think about when things happen in your community, who gathers first? Who who comes together and sees that there? I've got a way to help, whether it's a baguette or a twenty dollar bill. You know, there's uh, something to be done. And and so my dad forever just loved New Orleans and you know that story like it sort of still Absolutely. you know it also it does speak to you were me. saying his connection to the restaurant community right mm-hmm. like if the restaurant community takes care of others in many many ways yeah it brings me to like a second reset which is resetting during the pandemic right yeah. where you worked hard to help take care of the restaurant community, the mm-hmm. people sort of in your world and the outer world. So I was just hoping you could talk a little bit about yeah. that. Yeah. And, and that's a pandemic. great reset to, to ask about, I think. And, you know, nobody looks at that time and goes, oh, I'm so grateful we had a pandemic. You know? <laughs> that said, I feel really solidly about the way that we used that time. And we thought about it a lot as a period of time that we'd never want to have mm-hmm. access to again. Mm-hmm. But... <laughs> that we wanted to make the most of while it was there. So so first, kind of like the survival side of things, you know, we started with whittling down the team from 280 to 28 to two. Wow. <laughs> to, you know, and, and then, uh, you know, to, to kind of shutting everything down and doing these visits around all the restaurants to flush the toilets and run mm. the sinks and, you know, turn the stoves on, make sure everything was working. And that was a pretty wild time. And it was wild for everyone, you know, but then, you know, to to be cautious about trying to figure out what chances to take. Mm-hmm. And step one was to think about what needed to be done. So uh, I think the first thing we really put into action, we got involved in making some of those meals yeah. that went to healthcare workers and then getting involved in the independent restaurant coalition. Yeah, 
myself and, and my wife, Kate. Kate is the executive director of our company, uh, a, f- a former employee yeah, of, uh, love her. of Food and Wine. I love and, that little yeah, connection. Yeah, there. for sure. But uh, we were involved in, in the, the founding rounds of conversations with the IRC, mm-hmm. pushing that legislation forward, which did something really amazing for the industry. Showed and was that getting, framework, getting money, right? Getting, yes, yeah. getting more money yeah, through for the, the restaurant grants. For the restaurants, yeah. yeah. But also for us, we restructured our compensation model. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we previously had utilized in our service-based restaurants uh, the tip credit mm-hmm. and in, in general, folks who are working on the service side of things were, were doing quite well, yeah. but it did not allow us to have any um, thought on how tips could be distributed among mm-hmm. all hourly employees. So we restructured and uh, it's always pretty tough to, no matter if it's the right thing to do, it's the best possible way to do things. When you tell someone I'm going to change the way you're paid, yeah, rightfully so. You're you're talking about my money, my my income, my my ability to take care of my family, et cetera. So we were starting from square one. So that yeah. meant that we didn't just say, Hey, everybody come back to work. We rehired every employee on our on our teams to to distribute tips among all those hourly employees. Uh, and what I really love about that is everybody's sort of starting from the same much higher hourly amount and then everyone feels it when it's, you know, everyone works harder when it's a busier night Mm -hmm. and everyone feels the fruits of that. I know that one of the things that you've reset in the last few years is the stop drinking alcohol. Yeah. So today I have 139 days. Congratulations. Thank you. And um, this is something that I've always been a drinker, you know, and been uh, pretty pretty well known for my ability to hold alcohol. <laughs> Which you know, you come to realize later is I guess that's not, a double edged sword, thing, right? You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, I have a very social job. That particular offering is a part of my industry. Uh, I find myself, you know, thinking about traveling around the country for events, and that's got a big presence as well. And and then I, you know, at some point, it it took really kind of bottoming out to to see this for what it is. I realized how much anxiety I was managing. So I have a very public job. One version of my income is that I have an agent who books me for appearances. I, I speak in public and, you know, at times someone may hire me just to be present at a cocktail party uh-huh. and mingle with guests, that kind of thing. That became something that got a little harder for me over time. And it got easier to like have a drink and mm-hmm. just kind of round that edge off a little mm-hmm. bit. And alcohol just kind of became something different from for me than what it used to be. So it became a little bit more of a coping mechanism for stress and anxiety, depression, uh, which is, as we know, it just sort of feeds all those things ultimately more. So recognizing that on both sides of the family, it's it's a it's a present mm-hmm. issue as as a disease, and you know my parents were very social people. It, it was definitely something that I, I was around mm-hmm. a lot as a kid. In sort of doing this inventory and looking at looking at my life, I realized you know in say like when I got ninety days of sobriety, yeah. I realized how long it had been since I had had 90 days of sobriety. And I I shared this in a meeting at some point, like in thinking about it, I realized probably not since I was like 15 years old, because in high school you start going to weekend parties and in college, of course you go to weekend parties. And then, and I, I would almost, you know, wonder for 
how many people that is true for from the moment you started. You know, w- when can you say you've had 90 days of sobriety? <laughs> Which, uh, you know, I think when I used to go like, oh, I'm going to take 30 days off just to, you know, just to make sure. Mm-hmm. Well, it's easy to take 30 days off if, you know, on day 31, you yes. can have a cocktail. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really, for me, it really took, uh, there, there's a whole like kind of cycle in this where at first you're like, trying to quit you're you're having and you know i think there's a lot of historically there's been a lot of shame in it there's been a lot of um you're trying to hold yourself accountable for something that's hard to do and if you're really not ready then it's this sort of shame spiral that's very difficult so i am opted to be public about it because so much of my life is public and i liked two parts of that i liked the accountability for Mm -hmm. me because before that i was kind of creating these dark spaces hey nobody knows this about me i can it's been a pretty stressful day. I can have a drink, you right. know, and, um, but until I could really decide to like do it for me, that's when it worked and let go of all of the questioning why or how long or different, you know, things that are suggested. I could poke holes in anything that someone said to me as to, oh, you should try doing this. So instead I just kind of decided to go with it and, and not argue with anything, just take, take what I could take for me and, um, that has kept me sober and it's been really great. And I, I'm a big fan of having uh, the option of zero proof uh-huh. cocktails and, and oh. beverages. And I think we're seeing so much, even for people who drink occasionally, we're seeing so much interest in that in our industry. And I love that I'm doing this in a time where that is very available and a very, very much a growing culture. So, so there's yeah. so many amazing oh. options at the moment. One of the things I think that holds people back is, all the socializing. When I was at Food and Wine, and I'm I'm an early to bed person. Mm-hmm. I'm like a very light drinker. I always felt like I missed kind of everything. And Kate Crater, who you know, yeah, um, who was the restaurant editor, Kate would go out until all hours, and yeah. I would like talk to her in the morning, like, "Tell me, what did I miss?" Because <laughs> yeah. everything happened after I went to bed. Yeah. And I just wonder, you know, if you you actually may not care at all, but if there's some sense of like, you know, coming to terms with, am I going to miss anything? Does it matter? Right. You no. Know? Yeah, the fear of missing out is definitely a big um, big piece, and I think. There's that, like, yeah, what what will I be missing if I never have this again? And I never have that again. And and I have a couple of thought process processes about this. And the first is when I think about that, like never popping a bottle of champagne again. Mm-hmm. Then I think about all the amazing yeah. friends that I've had incredible experiences with where where we've shared some of the neatest mm-hmm. champagne in the world. And then that I've been to champagne, I've been to Rams, you know that's special. And it still is right there for me. And it's not, and it's not there in like, Oh, I wish I was there. <laughs> I wish yeah, I could yeah. have that. It's like, wow, that is really special. And it didn't, I'm not missing it because it's still yeah. with me and I carry that, you know, and when that was a special thing that I was treating with the respect it deserves, that stuff, the good stuff is, is still there in a, in a memory for me that feels just as good as it did when, when living that. Yeah. So something that I love about that idea well, itself is very satisfying, right? Yeah. It, one doesn't need to repeat it over and over and over again. Like you have the experience, you can treasure it. But it also sort of reminds me of, you know, you live that idea of the past and present simultaneously mm-hmm. in something like pools. Yeah. Right? Oh, that's great. Because, yeah. you know, you have sort of in your feeling 
what pools was. You're not going to recreate that, but you right. like have an appreciation of what it was. And you move forward and you create something new every day. Yeah. And and like with the events and stuff. So it's, it's just sort of a, it takes a little time to get comfortable being public about it really helped me because yeah. it meant that I was going to these things and someone wasn't going like, Hey, let me get you uh yeah. you know, I was one of those people that people knew what to pour me and put it in my <laughs> hand. And, and so now it's, Hey, you know, we've got Rambler water at, you know, <laughs> whatever yeah. it might be. And, and then there's just kind of at first, you're worried about how everyone else is feeling and they're worried about how you're feeling. And then that just kind of, yeah. just kind of goes away. And also cause you did it for you. I think yeah. it's much harder if you're like, I need to do it because X person or yeah. I would disappoint them. Yes. And when it's yourself and you're like, I'm kind of doing it for me. So whatever you guys yeah. think. And, and that know. honestly, I just don't think that ever works in a healthy way until you can get back to that, doing it for you. Yeah. But in, in the being public about it, you know, there was the accountability for me, but then there was also knowing that little bit of like, the thing that makes it hard to talk about for people, I knew that I could be a part of changing that. Yeah. I, I hope to continue to uh, to be a part of changing that. And it's the people who kind of came out of the woodwork who I had no idea were sober and huh. have been sober for seven years or three years, whatever it might be. That was really amazing. Hmm. But also I had one friend who said, I'm on the exact same day count you are. And that was amazing. And then Goosebumps. also people who are like, you know, multiple people who are like, I've been, th- this has been on my mind and I've had a real hard time bringing it to the front of my mind. So I don't, I don't push on those people. I'm there if they want to talk about my experience thus far in this yeah. journey. And, and, and it's, uh, the, the journey continues. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's home of heritage radio network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. You have so many maxims that I'm a little bit obsessed with. (laughs) Um, And just I want to talk to you about the idea of leadership. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the phrases of yours that I really love is uh, strive for greatness, not perfection. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious like where your notions about leadership developed and how they've sort of evolved over time. Yeah, I think um, part of maturing into being a strong leader, and I, I feel very confident, you know, to say that I'm a strong leader. And I think my greatest strength is being open to change, mm-hmm. you know, and, and when I grew up a little bit and realized that making a change you know, the takeaway wasn't, oh, what we did failed. It was our eyes are open wide enough to see that there's an opportunity for evolution here. So like, what are some things like that you have gone through where you're like, oh, but you know, it's going to be okay. 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, we had a coffee shop uh, that was called Jewel. And it was something that we worked very hard on and poured all these resources into and finally got it to make like the smallest bit of profit. And looking at that and going like, okay, what are we pouring into this? What is it taking away from the rest of the company because we're focused on this? And at the same time, my first sous chef from uh, from Pools, Sonny Gerhardt, was looking for a restaurant. And I'm kind of like chatting with him about as he finds spaces. And then, you know, kind of hit me like, oh, wow, this is closing a restaurant. You know, that that seems like the ultimate I failed. I couldn't, I couldn't. And then realizing, you know, we didn't have to close it, but it was totally the right thing to do, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, but that that could be his restaurant. He bought that restaurant from Amazing. us. He got to go into his first big business deal with someone who he trusted, who he, who he knew, you know, we weren't in business together aside from, you know, him purchasing that from us, but he knew what he was getting, you know, and it, I'm so incredibly proud of, of the job that he's done and, and the leader that he has become over time. It seems very unfair that our expectation on the diner side is that a restaurant has to go on forever. Right. Right. I sure, mean, sure. Le, Le Bernardin celebrates 50 years. Fantastic. Yeah. But, you know, if it stopped at 40 and was brilliant and was like, I'm kind of done. Like, we need to give a little grace to people who are like, I'm actually ready to make a change and I'm done. I have so much respect for that. And yeah, you know, as as I said earlier, just the idea that if we're putting all this attention on something that we're just barely making it by, what are we taking away from our other leaders who need our time? And then, you know, I think I, I am very comfortable not being the person who's the best at everything mm-hmm. that we do. I love aligning with folks who have all these amazing strengths um, and listening to them, asking them questions, sharing my perspective and getting to a decision from there. And then, you know, also I think just, I look back, I had so many just positive experiences throughout my entire career when things weren't perfect. Now, could I look at things and go, oh, this place would be a success if they just do this, this, and this. I wrote down what I would do differently mm-hmm. and learn from that. And and then I made sure when I open my own place, I'm going to make sure we've got this because I've learned my lesson. I, and I still valued, right. you know, the experience of learning from someone perhaps doing it for the first time themselves, you know. And so, you know, I think listening is probably the greatest, uh, the greatest asset for, for leadership and doing so. I think calmly confidence, though, which is where yeah. you start. That's the first thing you said, right? Like, yeah. I'm a confident leader. How do you think people who don't have confidence can build confidence? Um, well, I think the listening is a part of it. Just slowing down. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think that y- you don't have to let people know you're in charge. Your actions mm-hmm. of of being the person they can look to for making the plan for how things go better, how things uh, continue to run well. You know, I, I think those are the things that stand out. And I, and I believe very much in, uh, and more and more as I continue to mature in my mm-hmm. role, you know, in collaboration. I mm-hmm. think that this is an industry where everyone who works in this industry, we're all so different from one another. And that it means you can't just manage folks in one way. That doesn't yeah. work, right? Because the greatest offering and gift of this industry is the unique the, the uniqueness of all the people who make it up. So that requires us to be uh, to hold our standards in the same place, but adjust how we get there based on um, the uniqueness of, of our people. But uh, circling back to just that idea of um, going for greatness mm-hmm. instead of perfection, I, you know, I think that perfection exists because we limit 
ourselves and what we imagine the possibilities to be, you know, and um, perfection is a stop sign, in my opinion. And I, I don't see how it's an earthly possibility. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, so and, and one thing that I've known uh, through my whole career uh, is and even just as a early line cook is what a cool business. You're never done. Yeah. You know, it's never just <laughs> over. And that doesn't, and, and that's something I think that has been a bit of a gift in uh, the clarity that has come from sobriety mm-hmm. for me is I work hard uh, in my days. Every day is a little different. I accomplish, I may have a big list and I go after it and I do everything that I do. And I, I seldom finish my list. Mm-hmm but I'm done yeah. when I'm done. Yeah. And, and I know that everything I've achieved allows me to feel like that switch can just organically flip to whatever my version of the evening is. Um, and I like that. And I, I, I've never experienced that. That's new for me. And I'm, uh, I'm, I mean, I'm experiencing a, a peacefulness in my days, whereas uh, I'm sleeping well for the first time in like 10 years, whereas I used to I just couldn't shut it off. And mm-hmm. I would wake up. I never had trouble falling asleep. I'd wake up in the middle of the night mm-hmm. and my mind would already be going. And, you know, I think I've had the chance to realize that the things we hold on to, they're not because of this thing that just is buzzing and happening in the world. It's our choice mm-hmm. to um, engage with them in that way. So, you know, realizing that I can achieve so much more both in in what I produce and put out into the world, but also just in my centeredness and inner peace. If I do what I do, I work for greatness. Mm -hmm. And when I'm done that day, I'm done until tomorrow, you know, and, and it is, it's interesting. Some days, two thirds of that list is left. And I still know that I did what I was supposed to do that day. I hope that everyone who's listening has a day like that. You know, I think it's, I think it's very hard to do because the list is a list. Yeah. When you're switching off from like checking things off and doing what's in front of you, have you changed the way you spend the time that's not at work? Yeah. You know, I think I've gotten back to things that have always been, been part of, uh, my list of joyful things that mm-hmm. I, that I do at home. Uh, I love a home project. Like I, I find that I used to work a little more manically and like, oh, I can't do this other stuff I have to do until this is done. So I, you know, work, work this through to it, to its entirety and then, okay, now I can focus on this until I can find something else to distract me <laughs> away from this thing I need to do. I guess they're very similar. <laughs> they're, you yeah. had a search for distraction. Yes. Now you have an investment in calmness. Mm, yes. Um, um, but, but you know, uh, something I like to do is just look at one thing that needs to be sorted through like a drawer. Mm. Like I, that'll be something that I might do when I'm having my coffee in the morning, you know, and, and just that little thing that's I didn't organize the kitchen, you know, we just kind of do this piece by piece that gives me just a little gets my mind organizing for my day. Sometimes I'll come home and like finish the, the afternoon working from home. And an, mm-hmm. I, I require changing environment a little bit. I'm not a very good mm-hmm. office person. Mm-hmm. I like to kind of hop around and, and, uh, get a different coffee and <laughs> with a different environment. But, um, but then, you know, my, my wife and I cook 
almost every night. Uh, I love to cook at home. That's great. And she loves to cook too. And we just kind of, gosh, she's just such a great cook. So it's a it's a fun refrigerator to get to to get to work out of and freezer and freezer. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, and we've got puppy dogs. And Kate is a big uh, gardener, so we're getting into our spring garden season. And that means I, I do not have a green thumb. She does, but that means she'll be imagining where all the plants are going and if she'll chip me off a little task of, of, you know, doing something that helps support her in that, then those are places that I feel very uh, included and uh, get to accomplish these little things that bring her joy. So um. one of another, one of your leadership maxims is the guests are not always right, but mm-hmm. they're always welcome. Yes. And so, you know, this is just a um, an angle of hospitality uh, to me that is about hospitality not being a transaction, but a more of a, a living conversation. And I think that, you know, part of that is help helps us. It does two things. It helps our team to see the opportunities in hospitality um, and to slow that process down a little bit and look for the moments Mm. that are the magic that people take out of an experience and go, I love this place and this is why. You know, it was never about the idea of there's that idea like the customer's always right. And and in really kind of holistic hospitality, I don't believe that can be true. And and in a, a, a day and age where the goal is for um, people to exist respectfully around each other. It's real important that we make it clear that that needs to be mutual. So, and when we look at people who join us as guests, as opposed to just someone passing in and out of the door, mm-hmm. a good guest comes back. So, you know, there's there's that opportunity there for us. And I think that the notion of the good guest coming back it's a it's a way of creating community. And that you're mm-hmm. you've been so community focused. Yeah. And you also have been part of the revitalization of Raleigh and done so much, uh, just invested your own time in um, helping others with local not-for-profits. How does that fit into the way you think about the puzzle of your time in life? I feel that the restaurants, the restaurant industry as a whole is sort of positioned in a way that it has the opportunity to have a lot of positive influence on community. So I, so I see that opportunity. Um, I've always, I've been involved in a lot of community work and it's always amazing to see the way that people will come along on the journey with us when it comes to raising money for our amazing shepherd's table soup kitchen Mm -hmm. in, in downtown Raleigh or for the Frankie Lemon School, which is 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 big for us. Um, How you did know. you choose those two? Because Frankie Lemon seems like you have a very long yes. I've got with. I've got a twenty year relationship okay. with the yeah. Frankie Lemon Foundation. I, I feel like people are the thing that we most naturally mm-hmm. connect with. You know, you you choose friends because you share the same values for something, or you uh, like to do similar things. So I think about this as uh, Eliza Craft Olander, who mm-hmm. is. Uh, one of my best friends and was my first investor. She was our investor for Pools Diner uh, years ago when I was working at Enoteca Venn. She was very involved in, it's now trying a wine and food experience. It was just trying a wine experience at the time, uh, but for the Frankie Lemon School. And she got us involved as a restaurant, doing a restaurant dinner. And then she asked me to be a part of an auction item at some point. And I, you know, I said to her at the time, I'm like, do you really think people would pay a lot of money for that? And she just kind of patted me on the back. <laughs> so hey, let me take care of that. And so she did the wines. It was a dinner in her home. And it, I called her after. I'm like, how did that, how that auction item go? It was like $30,000 wow. for people to have dinner with us, you know? And, and, uh, and that just, I was like, 
oh my goodness, like this is, that really opened my eyes up to where we can, you know, help, help causes, not just raise funds, but Mm -hmm. raise awareness. And so she has been uh, my greatest mentor in that work with without question. Um, well, let's talk yeah. about recipes a little bit yeah. because I want to make, but we have just a little bit of time left together and I think we can just make people drool. I was talking <laughs> to uh, our engineer here and I was like, I just, I have to have the fried chicken. I have to have the macaroni au gratin. I have yeah, like, yeah. I have such a list that is in my mind from reading about your food for so long, never cooking it myself because I'm a lousy yeah. cook and I just don't, it's, Hey, we yeah. need you guys. <laughs> exactly. I, I'm your perfect person because I'm like, feed me every night of the week at a yeah. restaurant. Um, what are the recipes that you're excited about from the past? Like, do you never want to see a macaroni au gratin again? Or are you like, no, bring it on every day. Yeah. And what are you excited about for the future? Well, someone just asked me that question. I was at Charleston Wine and Food and I was cooking a party. And I'm upstairs making this dish we've been making for 15 years and everybody loves it. And someone asked me, like, how do you feel about that? Like this, this dish, when people say your name and they go like, oh, you know, macaroni au gratin. I said, you know, I don't get tired of it because it still brings people joy. I'm always looking at it and going, you know, that, that, that one's pretty well on lock, yeah. but if something crosses my mind, that's going to make it better then I'm going to make that change to it, you know? And so, um, and I think we have a lot of have dishes like it? that. Uh, over time, you know, uh, in the early years, there were just little tweaks to yeah. amounts of cheese, this or that. And so it's, but it's been, it's been locked down pretty, pretty well. It's a little, it's a little hard to imagine it being different than it is now. Yeah. I'm always thinking about, um, like if we think back to when molecular gastronomy became this kind of like sort of took over everything. And that was frustrating for me because people were learning that before they learned how to braise on the stove, you know, because it was so interesting and shiny. But after it, it was around for a little while. I loved picking and choosing the things that can make our cooking more efficient, can allow us to create something more consistently if we're traveling to California, that that kind of thing. Um, so I love that. I love the idea of just um, where technique can mm-hmm. be stabilized and improved and, and uh, stabilized in the sense of being able to convey it in, in, mm-hmm. to a broader audience. But, uh, you know, I think... The core of my my cooking is based on classics, meeting fresh things that are grown here, and just always looking at them. You know, I say this again and again, but I think about it like an ex- an exploded drawing kind of diagram, where you take the simplest thing and you throw it against the wall and you look at all the parts hmm. and you go like, this is one thing that stands out and isn't quite speaking to everything else. How do I tune that in to make it part of this? this beautiful song that is this dish, you know? And so always just, you know, it doesn't have to be big and flashy and totally different. Nobody ever has to call it mine. You know, it just <laughs> has to be there and be beyond what was what was expected and still comforting. And, and so I don't just roast chicken with my eyes closed. I think about it every time I do it. It's one of my favorite things in the world, you know, but I'm always thinking like, well, what if I changed the oven temp to here and went this long at 300 and then popped up to 375? You know, <laughs> those kinds of, those are the things, that's the, my, that's about as wild as my world <laughs> gets, you know, but we'll, we'll do something like take, uh, what would be uh, mignonette for an oyster, and we'll we'll take all those flavors and puff chia seeds in it, and then put that on top of the oyster instead of wetting 
the oyster with with those beautiful flavors that we're so accustomed to. So those are the okay, places. That's kind of wild. Well, those are the places I that I like wild. to to get a little bit creative and and think about how these things talk to each other. But at the end of the day, what are you walking away with? Still that thing that when you sat at your favorite oyster bar, however many states away, you still had that, but then there's something different about it here, you know? And, and so that's kind of the space I, I live and bounce around in. And does your home cooking reflect the restaurant? Like, are those things quite similar to each other? Uh, in a lot of ways, something like death and taxes that, uh, you know, was born from a trip to Uruguay, even when they're cooking inside, it's a fire inside yes. of a stove, you know. So um, that restaurant opened after spending months cooking over an open fire in my backyard, you know. And then that place takes on its own voice based on the walls it lives in, you mm. know. And so, uh, but it all comes back to I'm just a person who wants people to feel like they came over for dinner. <laughs> and places you're excited about in Raleigh. Uh, so many places I'm excited about in Raleigh. Um, you mentioned Cheney earlier. Uh, you know, they're they're not quite right here in downtown, but they're nearby. Um, I love Fiction Kitchen, which is a vegan restaurant owned by Chef Caroline Morrison. I think she does a beautiful job. Uh, there's a group called Bolted Bread. Um, they, they have a handful of different things. They have Benchwarmers Bagels. It's a Montreal-style bagel shop and Bright Spot Donuts, which, wow, in sobriety, uh, I don't think I've walked past a donut that I didn't try. <laughs> sugar is real. The sugar craving is real. But they, they do a beautiful job, and uh, they mill their own grains. And so uh, love that spot. Um, I mentioned Sonny Gerhardt at uh, St. Rock. Love what he does. Um, I'm excited to see what's next, to, you know, what, what what's next to come. And I think that was a really fun part of we talk about the revitalization of Raleigh and we were here on the early side but what a wonderful thing to watch other folks take a chance on on downtown Raleigh and and become a part of uh, what makes it special. Thank you so much for joining me today it's been such an honor to have you on thank Thank you you. so much AC and uh, thank you Raleigh I'm so happy to be here and all of you who are listening I hope you enjoyed the podcast and come back next time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.